0: Amen. morning, church. I love that song. I would love to be singing that song with you. Uh, We are uh, still bound in our homes. God's Word is not bound. So I'm very thankful that I get to preach to you God's Word today. I am very prayerful and hopeful that God's Word would be an encouragement uh, to you today. So if you would, please take out your copies of that Word and turn in them to Genesis chapter 17. Back to Abram today. Finally renamed Abraham. Which means today is also back to covenant. You may think that I have talked a lot about covenant lately. You may think that I have talked about covenant too much. Uh, You would be wrong. Because covenant is everything. And covenant is everything because God is everything. This is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God. That is possible only through Covenant, John 17, 3 continues, that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Covenant is possible only through Jesus Christ. So one of my main jobs as a minister of God's word is to show you how that whole word is ultimately about Jesus Christ. It is to show you that as the word, this word, all of it, including the Old Testament, including Genesis 17, is ultimately about him. We did a bit of that last week from Genesis 16 as we saw the identity of the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord, to be none other than the word of the Son of God, Christ himself. Uh, Hagar has seen the messenger uh, who spoke to her, and verse 13 says, So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You, speaking to that messenger, you are a God of God of seeing. So the son of God as the word of God and image of God both speaks and shows God. So when you see the angel of the Lord, you're seeing the son. When you see God and hear God, you're generally seeing and hearing the son. So truly Jesus was correct then in John 5:46 when he said that Moses, the author of this book, the author of this chapter wrote about him. Jesus is all over the Old Testament. The Old Testament is all about Jesus. Well, if that's the case, what about chapter 17? And what about covenant? How does covenant relate to Christ? That's what I want to try to answer today. And how does covenant, particularly this covenant, what we call the Abrahamic covenant, how does that relate to us? How does covenant relate to Christians? And this is a more important question than you may realize. It's it's kind of hard to overemphasize how important this chapter is to your theology, which is ultimately just your, your knowledge of God. As Charles Spurgeon says, the doctrine of the covenant lies at the root of all true theology. And if that's the case, and we know that if Spurgeon said it, it is, then that makes this chapter all the more important, because this is the key chapter of covenant contention. We've already looked at covenant in chapter 12 and then in chapter 15. But I would happily put one of my Presbyterian brothers into this pulpit to preach on Genesis 12 or 15, or literally my actual Presbyterian brother-in-law in this pulpit to preach on one of those chapters. But I could not, and I would not do that for Genesis 17. For our difference depends almost entirely on Genesis 17. Our difference is not first that they baptize babies and we baptize only believers. Our difference is first our understanding of Genesis 17 and the Abrahamic covenant. And then out of that develops our difference uh, in our understanding of baptism. So this is a really important chapter. I attempted to kind of do the whole thing in one sermon. That was my goal. It just wasn't happening. So we're going to spend two weeks on this chapter. Next week, we're going to shift and focus more specifically on circumcision and baptism. But today, I want to set the stage for that by focusing on how we are to understand what God is doing here first. In this chapter. So, first this week, we'll focus more on what God is doing, and then we'll shift more to what we are called to do in response. Um, So, covenant this week, circumcision next week, the sign of the covenant. We've talked about covenant in 12, but if you go back and look at chapter 12, you'll notice that there's not one use of the word covenant in chapter 12. We talked about covenant in chapter 15, but if you go back and look, you'll notice that there's only one use of the word covenant in chapter 15. But if you count as I'm about to read chapter 17, you'll know that there are 13 uses of the word covenant in this chapter chapter. So we don't have to guess about what is this chapter about? This is about covenant. How does it relate to 12 and 15? Well, we'll see as we go, but basically in chapter 12, the covenant is promised, in chapter 15 the covenant is cut, and then here in chapter 17 we have the covenant confirmed and clarified. And that's going to be important. That's going to be critical to how we understand covenant, which means that we have Also to then consider the second most used word in this passage. Thirteen uses of covenant, ten uses of the word circumcise. What? How do those things relate together? And how does circumcision relate to Christians? How does it relate to baptism? These are all wonderful questions that we're going to tackle next week. First, covenant. What does all this have to do with you? Why do you need this? Why should you listen today to a probably long sermon on covenant? Well, it's because you were created for a relationship with God himself. You will find satisfaction, peace, rest for your soul, uh, not in the ending of the state's pause, not in an improvement of your circumstances, not in the raise, not in the vacation, not in whatever that thing that you want is. You will find satisfaction, peace and rest only in relationship with God himself. And covenant is the only way that you can be in relationship with God himself. How does perfectly holy God relate to pathetically sinful man? How can you, in all of your sin, find rest and be right with him? Covenant. And this is one of the most important covenant chapters in all of scripture. Now the second of Thomas Watson's difficult things I've been mentioning this. He always finds it difficult to do two things. The second is to make the godly joyful. And I agree with him. Joy is found only in relationship with the Lord. Relationship with the Lord is only found through covenant. So I should want to know everything I can about my wife. And how to relate to her. And the more I know, the more I find joy in her. How much more then should we want to know everything we can about our Lord. And how to relate to Him. And more than that, how He has related to us. So all I want to do this morning is by the grace of God, I pray that we may find joy this morning in the study of covenant. Let's find joy this morning in our covenant making. And covenant keeping God. We're going to do that with three points. We're going to see God very graciously come first and reaffirm his covenant promises. Then things get interesting. Then we're going to see God relate his covenant conditions. We have to unpack that. But then, third and finally, we're going to see the gospel. Well, we're going to see Christ. We're going to see God reveal his condition keeping seed or son. And I hope to explain uh, that as, as we walk through it. But Let's, let's read the passage first. Let's, let's get into God's Word. Let me read the whole thing for you. It's kind of a long chapter. We're going to focus this morning only on verses 1 through 8. But I want to read the whole thing for you so you've got the context in your mind. We'll do 1 through 8 this week, and then we'll come back and do the rest uh, next week. Uh, but let me read for you first Genesis chapter 17. Pay attention, because this is what God wants to say to you today. When Abram was ninety-nine years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. You shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety-nine, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after you. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. If you would bow with me, uh, let's, let's begin first uh, with, with a word of prayer. Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for the blessing of this technology uh, that we have been uh, given, uh, where we are able to meet virtually and still um, sit under the preaching of your word. And and so I ask uh, now that your spirit would work. Uh, through your word, I pray that you would move and, and set me aside. I pray that your word would be clear. I pray that you would be clear, uh, and that you would display to us your glory and, and your beauty and, and your grace. And I pray that you would help us to understand uh, what it is that you are showing us about yourself and about your son in this passage. Father, comfort the hearts of your people this morning uh, through the preaching of your word. I ask and I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. You have lots of questions, I know. We're going to lay the groundwork, and we're going to come back to a lot of those questions next week, so be patient. But first, context. Remembering 16 is going to be important to understanding 17. First, compare the last verse of 16 to the first verse of 17. 16, Abram was 86 years old. 17, Abram was 99 years old. Don't breeze over that. Uh, Abram sure didn't breeze over that. We have a tendency to read through these stories quickly and then automatically assume that one must come right after the other. That's not often the case. Thirteen years. That couple of millimeters of white space in your Bible between 16 and 17 represents 13 years. That's a long time. Think back to 2007. Can you even remember where you were, and what you were doing in 2007. I barely can, and I'm not too sad about that, because there's not a whole lot that I would like to remember. Not only did I not have any of my four daughters, uh, but I was still almost a year away from even meeting Melissa. I was working a scrub job for the UNC football team. I hadn't even decided yet to go to seminary. And ironically, in light of the passage before us, I was still a member of a wonderful church in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Christ Community Church, A Presbyterian church. That's funny. We'll talk about that next week. Thirteen years is a long time. Where were you 13 years ago? That's how long it's been since we left Abram last week. And we're told nothing about those 13 years. So we need to be careful speculating. We can't say for sure anything would literally be an argument from silence, but the text itself is drawing our attention to the time gap. We don't have anywhere else in this story where we get something like Abraham was 86, very next verse, Abraham was 99. So again, somewhat speculating here. It seems like things haven't been that great, In the interim. And I think one of the clearest indicators of this is verse 18, when God has given all these gracious promises, and Abram's response is still, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Remember what has happened last week sin happened, unbelief happened. Abram follows his wife's lead, he listens to the voice of Sarai, who took her servant and gave her to him. God has promised Abram a seed. At that point, it had been 10 years no seed. So they decided to take action. They decided to bring about God's good ends by their own sinful means. And so Abram sleeps with a woman who was not his wife. He commits adultery. He sins. But guess what? It works, right? What do you mean, he gets a son, or at least it seems like maybe they think that it has worked. Well, listen to Calvin on this verse. Uh, Calvin's—he's talking about how we got to be careful speculating. Similarly, but he says, "Let us it, let it suffice to accept what is certain, what's clear." Namely, that Abram, being contented with his son, ceased to desire any other seed. The want or the lack of offspring had previously caused him to constant prayer and and sighings, for the promise of God was fixed in his mind, that he was ardently carried forward to seek the fulfillment of that promise. But now, falsely supposing that he had obtained his wish... He is led away by the presence of his son according to the flesh from the expectation of a spiritual seed or the son according to the promise. So it seems like maybe kind of he thinks their has, scheme has succeeded. He's got a son. Again, I don't know for sure, but I do know that sin always has consequences. I do know that sin never satisfies. And I do know that there is no mention of God speaking or God appearing in this 13-year period. That's important. God doesn't appear and speak much in the Old Testament, actually. We sometimes read some of these stories and think, well, God's supposed to show up every morning in our devotions in an audible voice and a visible appearance. No, he wasn't doing that then either. It's been 13 years. Again, I don't know exactly what's going on in that interim, but what I do know is verse 1, Yahweh now does appear. Again, we can't get into it again, but remember what we talked about last week when we see God appearing, when we see some sort of image of the invisible God, we're generally to understand that as the Son, the Word, the one who speaks and shows God. And so God comes and appears. Notice that it's Lord there in the all caps, first part of the verse. That's yahweh That's his covenant name. So in this covenant passage, here's the covenant-making God. And he reveals more about himself, saying, I am El Shaddai. You see that translated as God Almighty. We're actually not entirely sure what this word means or where it comes from. It's regularly connected in Genesis to the promise of posterity, as it is here. So it has something to do with God's power and his power to provide, or his power to promise and then keep that promise. Because that's what he's doing here. He is speaking and he is promising. He is reaffirming his promises to Abram. And consider first how comforting that would have been to Abram after the events of the previous chapter. Again, we can't get into his head, we don't know, but was there a 13 year period of silence? Is Abram delighting in the success? Of his scheme for a son? Or is he aware of his sin and his failure? Wondering, uh, have I messed everything up? Where is God? What's going on? Remember that chapter 16 is structured after chapter 3. Chapter 16 is the fall of Abram and Sarai. But what did God do immediately after the fall of Adam and Eve in chapter 3? He came. He appeared. And he spoke. Yes, there was judgment. Um, I think we saw that judgment in the previous uh, chapter when he got, uh, God was speaking to Hagar. But there was also grace. There was a word of promise. And that's what we see here. Abram and Sarai have fallen in chapter 16. Here God comes into their situation, into their sin, and he speaks grace, a word of promise. Because this, is, this is what our God is like. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The girls and I are having a scripture memory race. Uh, their brains are younger and better than mine, um, but I'm more focused than they are, and I'm a harder worker than them. Uh, yes, I'm using rewards to motivate scripture memory. Um, if they beat me, because it's a race, they're not going to beat me. Um, so then I'll make them memorize some more, and I'll bless them with the reward anyways. The secret's out. Maybe that's bad parenting, I don't know. But they're learning scripture, and we're doing Romans 5. And I was struck uh, Thursday and Friday this week by how we're spoken of in Romans 5, uh, just in verses 6 through 8. And this is important. It's who we are and what we've done that makes who he is and what he has done so amazing. Three descriptions in those verses. This is what scripture thinks of you. Weak, ungodly sinners. And then yesterday I was in verse 10. Enemies. That's who you are in and of yourself. That is your nature. That is your spiritual condition. Apart from Christ, you are nothing but a weak, ungodly enemy Sinner. That's sure not the message of the world, is it? And that's not the message of much of the church as well. But it's the message of Scripture. And it's a true message, true to reality, true to our own experience and hearts, if we're honest with ourselves. Weak, ungodly, enemy sinners. Why emphasize this? Why constantly remind you of this? Well, because it makes the rest of the verses so amazing. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died. For the ungodly. He didn't die for the godly. He didn't die for the good. There are no good and godly. There are only those who think they are good and godly, and then there are those who know that they are not good and godly. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ dies for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. But God shows his love for Abram, and that while he was fresh off of sinning in Genesis 16, Christ comes to him. God speaks to him. Man sins. God speaks. That is wonderfully good news. Our God is wonderfully kind and compassionate. You have had a Genesis 16 chapter. You have committed what you are tempted to think of as some sort of unpardonable sin. You're, you're tempted to think that you are the one. You've done the one thing that God cannot forgive and that he cannot deal with. Abram has disbelieved God's clear word. He has slept with a woman who is not his wife, and then he has given that woman over to abuse. And God comes to him and speaks his gracious promises to him. You see, 17 is all the more amazing coming on the tails of sixteen, If you are in Christ, then that free grace that you have been given is all the more amazing coming on the tails of all of your sin. It's an awareness of how sinful we are that gives us an appreciation of how gracious God is. Abram has failed. God is faithful. And here he is reaffirming his gracious promises to his sinful servant. Look at verse 2. We're going to come back to verse 1, so hold on to that. He tells Abram to do something. Verse 2, that, that's important, that I may make my covenant between me and you. But look back at chapter 15, verse 18 for a second. Just flip a page back there to chapter 15, verse 18. There it says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Okay, What's what's going on here? Is this a second different covenant? Covenant. Some people try to argue that it is, but I don't don't think so. Uh, That make and that made are two different Hebrew words. We saw months ago that made in chapter 15 is actually the word cut. You cut a covenant. The word make in our chapter is a word used over 2,000 times in the Old Testament that can be translated a wide variety of ways. They're different words, but this one means to simply to give or to put or to set in place. Uh, the New American Standard probably gets the closest to the idea, translating our verse as, I will establish my covenant with you. So as I said at the beginning, chapter 12 is the covenant promised, 15 is the covenant cut or initiated or instituted, 17 here is the covenant established, reaffirmed, and clarified. The promises are the same. I will multiply you greatly. Remember, three main parts of the promise, blessing, seed, land. The main idea, chapter 12, verse two, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. How? How is God going to bless Abram? How is he going to make this one man with no children a blessing to all the families of the earth? Well, we later then saw it uh, more clearly in chapter 15, verse one, where God again comes to Abram and says, I am your shield your very great reward. Remember, we've got to keep this in mind. We get, all, we get the blessings wrong. We get so caught up in the land or the Middle East or all these things. Listen, the, the blessing is God himself. That's the point of all of this. The blessing, the ultimate and highest good is relationship with God himself. That's what God is doing. Think back to the beginning. God creates everything. He creates a place, that's a land. Then He puts a people in that place, that's a seed. And the blessing is that God's people will be in God's place with God. His presence with His people is the point. He is the point of all of this. We separated ourselves from Him with our sin. Instead of blessed, we chose cursed. The wages of sin is death. God is life. Separation from God then is death. That's the problem God is seeking to solve. All of this covenant stuff can get complicated. We can get covenant confused. But this is what these promises are all about. How can God restore the relationship? How can he bring his sinful people back into his perfect place to be in his holy presence? Covenant is how? Promises. Blessing God with his people. But what about the sin? How can he do that? There's sin. He's holy. It's the seed. The seed is the answer. Everything is about the seed. The seed is the story. If the promise is ultimately relationship restored, God present with his people, then this seed is the path to the promise. The seed is the promise. It's how God is going to rescue and restore his people. We looked at Genesis 3.15 last week. Now remember the, the promised one to come and solve the Satan, sin, and death problem. That's what God has been promising Abram. Through you, the seed who will save will come. That's the blessing. That's how God's people can be restored to God's presence. It's all about this seed, this son. And so he's made that promise in Genesis 3:15. He's made it in chapter 12. He's made it in chapter 15. And he's reaffirming that same promise here. And look, look at verse 3. Look at Abram's response. I love this. Then Abram fell on his face. It doesn't tell us why, but I think, I think we know why. This is worship. Worship is the proper response to God's revelation. Abram has just sinned greatly. Has there been silence? I don't know. But whatever happened in the interim, God has now come. He has appeared. He has revealed himself uh, as God Almighty, but also as Yahweh, as covenant Lord. And he has once again, in response to sin, he has reaffirmed his good and gracious promises. And Abram is undone. He's overwhelmed. Have you ever been overwhelmed by God's relentless pursuing grace in spite of your relentless fleeing sin? And God keeps going. Look at verse 4. All the good news here in these passages. Verse 4. Behold, my covenant is with you. That's wonderful news to Abram. You, sinful Abram, you, unfaithful, sleeping with Hagar, Abram, you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Right, so there's the seed again. Verse 5. Finally, verse 5. No longer shall your name be called Abram, meaning exalted father, but your name shall be Abraham, meaning father of a multitude, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. See. So there's the seed again. And in the midst of that, we see this renaming that's happening. Naming is about ownership. It's about authority. I get to name my children, not you. They're mine, right? But it's not just authority. It's about affection. Notice the kindness. Inherent in the renaming, the promises of blessing and relationship and love are bound up in the renaming uh, to a father of a multitude. Abraham's very name would be a reminder and sign of God's grace to him. I am going to do this very good thing for you. And I am going to give you a name that will always declare this very good thing that I am going to do to you. You are mine and I am good and I delight to do good to those that are mine, and so he gives him this name. We're going to get to circumcision as the sign. Don't miss the name as a sign as well of God's promises. And then look at verse six: I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Again, that's the seed again. Again, the this, this seed thing seems to be really important. Uh, uh, verse two, verse four, verse five, verse six—all about the seed. But notice we've got something new there. In verse 6, God's confirming, and he's clarifying. We haven't yet seen this. Here's an expansion, an explanation of the seed promise. Kings are included in this. That's interesting. That's important. It's going to say that to Sarah again next week, so we'll, we'll come back to that. Look at verse 7, and this is very important. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring. There's the seed after you throughout their generations for a don't miss this word for an everlasting covenant to be God covenant about relationship to be God to you and to your offspring. That seed again after you. And if you look at verse 8, you'll see the, uh, the promise of the land is reaffirmed as well. Again, don't miss that uh, God says that he will not only give the land to Abram's seed, but also to Abram himself. Also interesting, because Abram never possessed that physical land. Keep that in mind for next week. So all the promises here that we've seen are being graciously reaffirmed by the covenant-making God. But the, the focus here is clearly on the promise of a seed, of a son. And notice the subject, the actor of most of these verses. I will make, I will make, I will establish, I will give. The God of grace is declaring what he will do for Abraham. And we have to start there. But we cannot end there because that's not the whole story. The promises have been reaffirmed. Point number two. What's Abraham's, Role in all of this. That anything. We've seen what God is going to do. Does Abram Abraham have to do anything? I think this is often missed. You'll see that the focus shifts in verse 9. He's going to say, As for you, Abraham, this is what you shall do. Here's what I'm calling the conditions of the covenant. But we're not going to talk about circumcision yet. That's next week. We'll get there. It's too much for one week. So we'll look at that in great detail. We've got to sort out the relationship between circumcision and baptism. If we Baptists are wrong, then I have disobeyed God's word in not baptizing any of my four children. I will have not applied the sign of God's gracious covenant to my precious daughters, and that would not be good. But if we're right, well, then a lot of people that we love and care for have applied God's covenant sign illegitimately to children that they should have not applied it to and then they won't properly apply it to them later because they think it's already been applied to them. You see, this matters. This isn't a first order issue. This is not a question of salvation. Our Presbyterian friends are our brothers and sisters in Christ and I'm very thankful for them. My shelves are generally lined with theology of Presbyterians. Um, So again, not complaining about that. But this is An important question, and it matters. So again, so next week we're gonna come and I'm gonna try to convince you how important that is as we work through verses nine through 14. But for now, I actually wanna go back to verse one. We skipped a pretty important part. God graciously appears, he graciously speaks, he has said something, followed in verse two with a that I may make my covenant between me and you. Well, what is that, that doing there? What comes before that? Some imperatives, some commands. Abram, you do this thing, walk before me and be blameless. That, or simply and in the King James, implication, you do this and then, verse 2, I will make my covenant with you. That's interesting. It sure sounds like a condition, and it, and it is, Don't miss that it comes after chapter 16 either. After Abram specifically uh, was not walking before the Lord and not being blameless, uh, God graciously comes and he graciously commands, walk before me and be blameless. So first, what do those two commands mean? What does it mean to walk before God and be blameless? Blameless. Throughout scripture, we know the metaphor to to walk before someone means to to, to live, to to move openly, uh, to live in their sight or their presence. Uh, This specific in in the Hebrew is used frequently to refer to the service or devotion of a faithful servant to a king. Blameless simply means whole or complete or sound. Literally, it means complete or finished without lack or fault or error. It's used frequently in Exodus and Leviticus to refer to the sacrificial animals that have to be without defect or blemish or perfect, that is. This simply is a a call to obedience. It's a call to a life of holiness and righteousness lived before the holy and righteous God. And this is a command. This is an imperative. You, Abraham... Be holy and blameless, verse 2, that I may make my covenant with you. It's a condition. Here's how one commentator puts it, just so you don't think I'm on my own here. One commentator writes, To walk before God means to orient one's entire life to his presence, promises, and demands. Listen to this. Total obedience is the necessary condition to experience the covenant promises. Catch that? total obedience is the necessary condition to experience covenant promises. I hope little alarm bells of concern are going off in your head. Let me clarify, because I, I completely agree with that statement. Total perfect obedience, I'm going to argue, is the covenant condition, which means, just to be clear, That to be part of the covenant, to be included in the covenant, which is all about uh, being in relationship with God, there must be perfect obedience. We're going to get into this with a lot more detail next week when we look at what circumcision actually is and what it is supposed to be a sign of. But circumcision, verse 10, is simply the sign and summary of this, verse 1, total obedience. So track with me here. To be saved, you have to be in relationship with God. He is life, so obviously. To be in relationship with God, you have to be in covenant with God. Covenant is the only way that God relates to uh, his creation. And, if I'm correct, if there are truly conditions to the covenant, and if this is the condition, to be in covenant with God, there has to be total obedience. If there's not, if there is not blamelessness, then you are not and you cannot be in covenant. And thus, you are not and you cannot be in relationship with God, and thus you are not and you cannot be saved. Obedience is the condition of the covenant. You must be perfect to be in relationship with the perfect God. What do you think? God reaffirms his promises, but here he also relates his conditions. He's the covenant-making God, and he is the condition-making God. And here's why it's so important to know your Bible. Here's why it's so important to know and understand the big story. A story that is structured entirely around covenants. Which means that it's probably pretty important to know something about the first covenant. The covenant of works. Remember the covenant back in The garden, there are two trees, symbolic of blessing and curse, life and death. And there's a condition. Obedience of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. In other words, disobey me, fail to keep the condition of the covenant, and you will die. Kicked out of the garden. Implication, obey me, keep the condition of the covenant... And you will live. That is the first foundational and everlasting covenant. See, God the Creator enters into covenant relationship with man, the creature. God the Creator, perfect in righteousness, demands that man, the creature, be perfect in righteousness, to be in relationship. With him. You must be righteous to be in relationship with a righteous God. And that has always been the case. That has always been the condition that does not and that cannot change. That condition of the first covenant is the exact same condition of this covenant with Abraham, as well as the covenant with Moses, as well as the covenant with David, as well as the new covenant. John O. Peter, for my birthday, gave me a wonderful book on just Reformed Baptist covenant theology. And I'm reading through it this week. John Owen, in arguably the greatest exposition of the differences between the Old and New Covenant. Uh, John Owen, one of the smartest men who has ever lived on Hebrews 8, writes this. I do not say that the covenant of grace is absolutely without conditions. The covenant of grace has conditions, <laughs> according to John Owen himself. The condition now and then is righteousness. But Adam and Eve sinned. Abraham sinned. Moses sinned. David sinned. You sinned. None is righteous. No, not one. There are conditions to the covenant. And unless those conditions are met, there can be no covenant. There can be no relationship. There can be no life. There's only death and hell. And that's why Back to Genesis 3.15, in our response to our failure in that first and foundational and everlasting covenant, God then comes in and makes his first and foundational and everlasting promise. A seed. Point number three. I'll be brief. God has related his covenant condition, using that word on purpose, because God has related to us the conditions for being in relationship with him. And it's righteousness, covenant of works. Obey me, we failed, covenant broken, covenant ruined. But God comes and God promises a seed. See, we're looking bigger picture here as God is revealing to us his condition keeping seed. And as we've seen, this is, this, he, this is what the story is about. God comes to Abram in twelve, fifteen, and again here in 17, and he promises him a seed. And notice that he connects it to this expectation and this condition of obedience and blamelessness. So what's the connection? And Why again? Why is this seed so important? And how can the seed bring the blessing of restored relationship with God? How can the seed be the path back to the presence of God? Because the seed comes specifically to keep the conditions of the covenant. Pastor Mike read Galatians 3 earlier in the service, and it's such an important passage because it gives us God's own commentary on what is really happening here. Much of the failure to understand this covenant with our dispensational brothers and our Presbyterian brothers, I think comes from a failure to understand this covenant and read it through the lens of the New Testament and what God tells us about this covenant. And we saw in Galatians 3.16, we are specifically told that all of these promises that we just read, Paul says this, not me, he says all of these promises were made to Christ. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says Christ is the seed. Christ is what this whole thing is ultimately about. God has reaffirmed His promises and He has related His conditions and those conditions must be met. It's all conditional, but it's all conditional on Christ. You see, the good news of the gospel is not that there are no conditions. The good news of the gospel is not that there was this conditional covenant of works. Hey, you know, no big deal. Don't worry about that. Uh, Now there's this unconditional covenant of grace. No, that cheapens the whole thing. I'm tired of hearing people talk about unconditional covenants. It's simply not true. All of them have conditions. And safe for the covenant. No, that's a whole separate thing. Um, but when we lazily call these covenants unconditional, we actually rob God of his glory. Because what's happening here is so much better than unconditional. They're very much conditional. And the condition is intense. It's perfection. It's obey me and live. Walk before me and be blameless. And it is a condition that is impossible for us to meet. But the answer then is not that the condition doesn't matter and the condition goes away, so don't worry about it. No, the condition is still very much there. You must be perfect. And it is precisely that fact that makes the meeting of that condition so much more glorious. You see, all the covenants are conditional. But for God's people, they're all certain Because the good news of the gospel is not that it's all unconditional now, but that it's conditional and that God himself meets the conditions for us and in us and through us. You see, with man, this whole thing is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. The beauty of the gospel is that our God is both the condition making God and the condition meeting God. There are conditions always. And you fail to meet them. Always. But the good news of the gospel is that God meets the conditions for us. You see, his covenant will be kept. His conditions will be met. He will be our God and we will be his people. How? The seed, the son, Jesus Christ. You see, there's this tension that runs through the whole story. God tells Abraham here what he's going to do for him, but then he tells Abraham what he must do. He keeps calling this an everlasting covenant, but then in verse 14, it's clear that the covenant can be broken. God keeps making all of these amazing promises and keeps demanding all of these amazing conditions, and man keeps amazingly failing. Abraham has just sinned greatly, and he will again, and we'll see this throughout the whole Old Testament. You must be righteous. But it's just sin and failure again and again and again. And then the Old Testament ends with no resolution. Why? Well, it's to force us to see that there is no hope in man, that there is no hope in ourselves. And in so doing, it's supposed to then force us to look elsewhere in our hopelessness and despair. It's to force us in our sin and our pride to finally look to him as our good and gracious condition meeting God. The tension that runs through this whole story and the whole Old Testament is resolved only by Christ, who is both the faithful God who has taken on flesh to also be the faithful man to live a perfect life of righteousness in our place and to die a substitutionary death of payment in our place. Christ, who is both God who makes the conditions, then becomes man to come and keep those conditions. You see, it's the very conditionality of the covenant that makes its certainty so much more beautiful and gracious and desirable. And it's certain because of Christ, because of this seed. That's why this seed is so important. Listen, that's why circumcision is going to be so important next week and we've got to get it right. That's why the whole story of Abraham is here. It's not just about Abraham wanting a kid. It's not about Abram having, um, it's about Abram having a kid, the son, through whom the son would eventually come. This isn't about Abraham being the father of a bunch of nations, um, but being uh, the father of the multitude through whom the son would eventually come. It's not about a particular ethnic people. It's not about a small strip of physical land in the Middle East. It's about what God is going to do to defeat sin and Satan and death. This is about Jesus Christ who comes to keep these conditions for us. Yes, you must be perfect. That's always been the case. Nothing has changed. You must be righteous to be right with and in relationship with the righteous God. The good news of the gospel is that you can be counted righteous. You can be right with God. Let me be clear, not because of anything that you do, but entirely because of what Christ has done for you as the seed, as your substitute, as your representative righteousness. Romans 3.22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. You have to be righteous. The conditions have to be kept. And the gospel is all about how you can be righteous in Christ who keeps the conditions for you and who gives you the benefits of his perfect covenant condition keeping through the gift. And so the call is not, hey, you be perfect. The call is, hey, believe in and trust on the one who came to be perfect for you. And then who counts you perfect and counts you righteous when you are in him. Jesus is the seed. And the seed is what Genesis 17 is all about. He's the seed, as we saw in Galatians 3.16. But listen to verse 28 that we didn't get to read. It says, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring seed, heirs according to the promise. See, that's what this promise is all about. It's about God bringing his people back to him, and it's all conditional. But for those who are his, for those whom he has chosen and called, it is absolutely certain, because he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. You see, God makes the conditions. Christ The seed meets the conditions for we, the seeds, and we receive the reward, relationship, restoration to the presence of God. That's the blessing that is being promised to Abraham. And that's what's, being, uh, that's what's being pointed forward to in this call for him to be blameless and to walk before the Lord. He's not going to do that perfectly. Uh, the, the circumcision is supposed to represent this perfect righteousness. He's going to fail to keep that perfectly, but it points us forward to the seed who is going to come and do all of these things perfectly for us. The point of the seed is what is promised uh, to Abram, and the point of the seed is the blessing of God with his people. So this is all this chapter, which we're going to go. We'll get into the details. We'll talk about circumcision. We'll talk about baptism. We'll do all that next week. But I want you to see first that Genesis 17 is all about this conditional, but certain covenant uh, for those who are his. I will be your God and you will be my people. But you have to be righteous to be in relationship with the righteous God. Well, praise God then. For the provision of Christ as our righteous substitute who meets those conditions we utterly fail to meet for us. And in so doing, who makes us alive and who redeems us and who restores us to God. See, the whole story uh, from beginning to end is about him and what he is going to do to rescue his people, to rescue you. And you see how much better it is That it's not, hey, it doesn't really matter. God forgives you. God loves you anyways. It does matter. You have to be perfect. Look at what you've done. And look at what Christ does for you. To pay for all that. And to forgive you. And to reclaim you. That is how uh, Christians can become joyful. It's about knowing the relationship. And knowing the cost of what Christ has done. To purchase and make that relationship Possible. God is such a gracious and kind God that your Genesis 16 does not disqualify you from what he comes and promises to do for you in Christ in Genesis 17. So rest and rejoice and find great gladness and joy in our uh, Savior, Jesus Christ, who has come and met all the conditions for us so that we can be right with God and righteous. In Him, if you would bow with me, let me let me close this time uh, with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, I thank you that your word is clear. Oh, Father, forgive us for how easy it is for us to cloud that which is clear. Father, I pray that I would not cloud that which is clear. I pray that we would see your grace. I pray that we would both see your perfect. Holiness and your perfect righteous standard that you will not and that you cannot relax, and that we would see your mercy and your grace and your compassion to send us your Son to meet that perfect righteous standard for us. Father, I thank you that we can be considered and counted righteous, that we can stand before you, that I can be right with you, not because I'm righteous, not because I've kept the conditions, um, but because by your grace. Through the gift of faith, I am in your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, give us great comfort and hope in the gospel. Father, as we are still stuck in our homes for who knows how long, as we're facing frustration, as we're fighting against dissatisfaction and discontentment and grumbling and sin of, of various kinds, Father, show us the glorious good news that you make covenant with your people, that you enter into relationship with us, and you do that at great cost. To your son, Jesus Christ. And so I pray that we would be identified with and we would be defined by the fact that we are now right with you, that we didn't deserve it at all. And I pray that that would make us happy and glad and joyful and content because nothing can touch that. And all is right if, if that is right. And so, Father, I simply ask that you would use your word now to encourage the hearts of your people. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.